I'd like to try something today. I can't promise we'll keep doing it, but we'll try it and see how it goes. Since we have the kids in the service with us this morning, I want you guys to be listening for two questions, the answers to two questions, I should say. The first question that I want you to listen for is this. What is discipleship? What is discipleship? And then the second question is, can Satan keep us from doing what God wants us to do? So as you listen to our time in God's Word this morning, think about those two questions and uh, write the answers down if you hear them. Maybe it's something that you and your parents can talk about this afternoon, and we'll see how that goes. Take a moment and think about your close friends and family. People that you might not see for a month or even longer, but the next time you see them, you can sort of pick up right where you left off. Why do those relationships work that way? We'll come back to that in a few moments, but let's review from last week. Last week we saw that gospel ministry is persistent, genuine, and parental, and then it leads to a faith that is able to go through trials, that's able to stay strong in suffering. But another word for gospel ministry would be the word discipleship. Matthew 28, Jesus described the church's task this way. He said, make disciples. But he's got these other words around that. Going, make disciples. Baptizing, teaching. And so that describes what the church is supposed to do out in the world. But when it says that last word, teaching, or when we think about this whole process of discipleship, I think we should ask ourselves, is that just a classroom setting, like Sunday school? Is that just what we do on Sunday mornings here in the main service? Is that a maybe like a Bible Institute type class or some other class you might take? I think we can definitely see that Jesus taught his disciples, but it wasn't always strictly in a classroom type setting. He taught them along with teaching large crowds. He taught them sometimes just as a group of 12. He taught them sometimes as a group of three. And sometimes he spoke to them one-on-one, -on -one, although sometimes the other disciples would be standing around. But Jesus didn't just stand up in front of them and say, here's what God says about a variety of topics. He also lived with and among them for more than three years. So he was living out the truth, not just speaking the truth. We see the Apostle Paul doing a similar thing. Obviously, there are people that Paul was closer to. There were those that he considered uh, partners in ministry. And there seemed to have been different degrees of this because some of this, some of those people we know a great deal about, and some of those people we just see Paul mention their name and he says, I'm thankful this person is serving alongside me in the Lord. And so Paul seems to have been closer to certain people that he partnered with in ministry, but he also became very close to the churches that he ministered in. Uh, 2.8, that we looked at last time, said that the Thessalonians became very dear to him. And this morning's passage is again going to talk about Paul's closeness to the Thessalonians, his ministry to them. And so I think that raises the question for us, how long was Paul in Thessalonica? Because the language that he talks about 
might not seem to fit with what we read in Acts 17. So turn over to Acts 17 with me, if you would, and we're just going to take a quick look at what it says there about Paul's visit to Thessalonica. As I said last week, uh, Paul uh, went and uh, had the, the, the conflict in Philippi, and then the jailers converted at the end of Acts 16. And then you come to Acts 17, and it says, When they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. But when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. We look at this, and it seems as though Paul is in Thessalonica for about three weeks, and then he gets kicked out. But uh, in the, the book of Philippians, Philippians 4.16 Paul is expressing his gratitude to the, the, to the Philippians, and he says to them, you sent a gift for my needs more than once. So how far is Philippi from Thessalonica? It's about 100 miles, which to us is not all that far. We, we could drive that in a couple of hours today. In their day, walking, it would have probably been probably maybe like a five-day trip one way, and then there had to be a return trip. You have to also account for the time that it would have taken for the Philippian church to learn about Paul's need and to say it's time to send another gift back. And so obviously this process would have taken longer than just three weeks. And so I think what Luke is doing here, he's not in error. He's just sort of compressing and summarizing Paul's visit to Thessalonica. How long was Paul there exactly? We don't know exactly but some would think that Paul was there probably between three and six months. So on the one hand, uh, three months isn't all that long to connect with people, is it? Or even six months. And yet Paul had formed a close enough bond with the church at Thessalonica that in one of the first verses we're going to look at this morning, he describes his leaving them as being ripped apart. Or the NIV says he's orphaned, which I think is actually the literal translation of the word that's used there, which seems backwards to us because you don't think of Paul was like the teacher. So how was he orphaned by being torn away from them? I think he's just focusing on the, the, just the breaking of the relationship, the forceful being pulled away from them by this opposition of the Jews. So going back to the question I started with, why are your close relationships close? Obviously, family relationships tend to be close because you grow up with those people. They're your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your aunts and uncles, your grandparents. You know them, and you've known them for a long time. And so, 
you can call up, assuming a good relationship in your family, you can call up one of those family members and have a conversation, and there's all this background that you have with them. Why do we have friendships? Well, friendships often occur when we have similar interests, similar experiences, when sometimes we just happen to be in the right time and place and we meet someone and we hit it off with them, and sometimes we form lasting friendships where, again, you can just sort of see that person a few months later and pick up where you left off. But Paul's not really talking about family. None of these people were, he wasn't born in that place. He didn't know them that way. And he's not really talking about friendships in the sense of common interests. But instead, I think Paul is connecting with them because he invested himself in the spiritual growth of the Thessalonians. He discipled them. And the passage we're going to look at today describes it mainly from Paul's perspective as the one teaching. But I think we can see from other passages in the Bible that discipleship relationships in the church don't just come from the one who's teaching to the one who's receiving the teaching. They come from all of us to each other. And they also come sometimes as appeals from the one being taught or the one who's younger to the one who's older or the one who's teaching. And so we see all of these kinds of relationships in the church. So this morning, I want us to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to go down into chapter 3. And I want us to see what we can learn about discipleship. Last week, if we had to summarize it, I think I would say that it was the manner of Paul's ministry, the manner in which Paul did discipleship. And this week, I think he's going to talk about his method. How did he bring it about? But before he, before he talks about that, he talks about his motivation. And after he talks about his method, he talks about what are the results of doing this kind of ministry. So the thing that I think we need to see first is that future joy should drive our desire for discipleship. Future joy should drive our desire for discipleship. And that motivation helps us to overcome various obstacles that we're going to see in this passage. And why are there obstacles? Well, you see in verse 17, We, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So what's one of the obstacles? Discipleship can be interrupted. It's going along well. There's this, this interaction, and then it's interrupted by something. And one of the interruptions that Paul refers to is persecution. Verse 17, we have been taken away from you. We've been torn away from you. We've been orphaned from you. Why? Because of what it said in Acts 17. So they were torn away from him, and he from them, and so this relationship was interrupted. Uh, there was a class I took in college, and in one of, the, one of the things that we had to write a paper on was, if you were a missionary, and there were threats on your life, would you stay there? Would you keep your family there with you? Would you leave that place? And that's a difficult question, right? Because... If there's a, a body of believers that a missionary is planning a church among that, that need leadership, that, that he wants to see that go forward, and yet if there are threats on his life and the lives of his family, you know, what would you do in that situation? I'm not going to tell you my answer. We talk about it after the service if you want to discuss it more. But it's that sort of scenario where Paul had to say, 
do I stay? Because if I stay, they're probably going to kill me. Or do I go? And I think Paul had a sense from God and from the encouragement of the believers there that it wasn't his time yet. And you see Paul doing things like that. Sometimes he lets them beat him because then he says, hey guys, you just broke the Roman law. So you've got to let me stay and talk a few more weeks because otherwise you're going to be in big trouble. I'm not saying he was being manipulative, but Paul saw various circumstances as opportunities for the gospel. So discipleship can be interrupted by persecution. It can also be interrupted by distance. And I think this would be more an application of what Paul is saying here. But I think that we see that even in our own church. When you're sick and you can't gather with the church, when you're traveling and you can't gather with the church, there are these interruptions that come up in life. And so we have to say, how do we keep that connection going? We'll talk more about that shortly. And just in connection with this, I'm encouraged to hear of people staying in touch with church members when they're not able to be here, when they're traveling, those sorts of things. That's encouraging to hear that there's a love and a concern for fellow church members that we would stay in contact with one another and just be aware of what's going on in each other's lives. So discipleship can be interrupted, but I think it can also be halted, just brought to a complete stop, at least for a time. Look at verse 18. He said, I wanted to come to you, and yet Satan hindered us. So discipleship can be halted, in this case it says, by Satan. This raises an interesting question for us. Can God overcome what Satan is trying to do to thwart his work? Was Paul being proud to think Satan was interfering with him personally? To the first question, I think we would say this. Satan can't do anything without God's approval. Consider Job 1. What does Satan have to do? He comes with the other angels, the sons of God that are described there. He has to present himself in God's presence. God says, what were you doing? And Satan has to give an account to God. And Satan says, I want to go after Job. And God says, here's the boundaries. And we look at that and we say, well, I kind of thought, you know, Satan is here and God is here and they're just kind of in this battle. Well, it's more like God is here and Satan is here. It's the difference not between two people, but the difference between a person and an ant, or even a further uh, difference in those things. When I say ant, I mean uh, the bug, because my wife's ant is sitting here, so I thought I should clarify that. Uh, but there is a vast difference in God's greatness versus Satan's power. I think we also have to recognize that God has given Satan limited authority over the world for a time. It talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, that the the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And so there's a sense in which Satan is ruling over the world. And in Sunday school we talked about discipline, and in 1 Corinthians 5 it says, put the one who is sinning in Satan's domain, so to speak. Again, what does that mean? It said instead of being recognized as being part of the church under God's authority, this person is being recognized as behaving and living as though they're just out under Satan's authority, out in the world. In God's sovereignty, Satan is even used to bring suffering or interrupt the plans and desires of God's people. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, I know there's debates about what's meant there. Some will say that it's a physical ailment that Paul faces in that passage. But it does specifically say God sent, or there, there, there was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet, to, to attack me. And so there's a sense in which Satan was interfering with Paul in that way. And then also in this passage that Paul wanted to be with the Thessalonians 
And Satan's opposition was an obstacle to that. I think we have to recognize that Satan is a created being, and so he can't be everywhere. And so if all of us say, Satan is attacking me personally, I don't know that we can say that. I think Paul could say it, first of all, because he was an apostle and had, I believe, revelation from God in this regard. And second, because the work that he was doing was foundational to the establishing of the church. So if Satan was going to derail what God was doing in the world, it was going to be in interfering with the ministry that Paul and the other apostles had in founding churches and taking the gospel to the Jews and to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. And so that's why I think Paul makes the statement that he does. What would our response be when we have a sense that there are obstacles to our spiritual growth, that there's spiritual warfare going on? It's not that we would try to name and cast out a demon. It's not that we would uh, try to identify always the exact source of a temptation or an obstacle, because sometimes it comes from the sinful world around us, sometimes it comes from our own hearts, sometimes it comes from, indeed, Satan and his demons working in the world to try to interfere with us. Our response, as we would see in Ephesians 6, is to take up the full armor of God, to resist the devil and he will flee from you, and let God work in those circumstances. And yet, we see clearly here that discipleship can be halted by spiritual warfare. I think we can see, not necessarily from here, but in later passages in which Paul writes, that discipleship can be halted by death in this sense. Not that the person no longer has opportunity to grow, but that that relationship, when one of the people is taken away, that specific relationship can't continue. But just as an aside, I think that we would remember that if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in the church, if there's truth that's being passed on to faithful men who teach others also, then the death of one person shouldn't halt God's work in the church, should it? So we see that discipleship can be interrupted by uh, specific opposition, persecution, or distance. We see that discipleship can be halted by Satan's opposition or even by death. But I think we also see in these verses, discipleship should be motivated by future joy at Christ's coming. And we see this in verse 19, that Jesus is the focus of this coming in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. Who, what is the coming about? The return is about Christ. It's not about us. And yet, Paul says in the context of Christ's return, where you see, for example, in Revelation, amazing descriptions of Jesus' power, His person. Uh, here we see described as His presence of Jesus at His coming. Even in that context, Paul recognizes that there are going to be things happening with us as well. And I think we see that this joy is not only in Jesus, but part of it is seeing His work in those that we've ministered to and who've ministered to us. Just a quick aside along these lines. What are you living for? What's your legacy? My grandpa was a pastor for a number of years. He left me a lot of books. And I'm grateful for those books. I've used them. They've been valuable for me in studying and those sorts of things. But if his only thing that he left me was stuff, I think he would have failed in his responsibility before God. And why do I say that? Because at the end of the day, the point of our life is not to 
have experiences and make memories and accumulate stuff and all these sorts of things. And so when people look back over our lives, they say, look at all these things that he did, look at all this stuff that he had, look at all the things that we have accomplished. Because Paul views here his joy, his hope, the reward of, of, of his ministry as what? People in a right relationship with God, in God's presence. Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? For you are our glory and our joy. And so we have to ask ourselves, what am I living for? We need to be living to make Jesus known to the people around us. Because houses fall apart. Uh, last Sunday night, we got home and the air conditioner was broken. And uh, had somebody come out the next morning and fixed it, so we're thankful that didn't take very long. But stuff breaks. Jesus said, moths eat the clothes and thieves steal the money and all of these sorts of things. So don't live for things that don't last. Instead, live for God as you minister to the people around you because that is what will last. So that's our motivation. Future joy. We may not experience it now, but we look forward to it. So if future joy is the motive for our discipleship, then persecution, spiritual battles, all of these things won't ultimately stop it from happening. But what do we have to do to make discipleship happen? Pursuing discipleship requires following up. And this gets into the method of discipleship. And this is certainly not exhaustive. There are tons of things in the Bible that we could look at on this subject of discipleship. But from this passage, I think we can see that discipleship, a primary method of it happening, is following up with one another. Why do I say that? Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So what would I summarize those first two verses as? Follow-up needs to happen, but if you can't go yourself... Send someone that you trust to do it. And so that's what Paul did. He said, I can't go back there right now. They're going to kill me. But they need someone to go and be with them, so I'm going to send Timothy. Why do I say someone we trust? Because he said he's a brother and he's God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Timothy was like a spiritual son to Paul. Uh, Paul had taken him with him on the missionary journeys. He trained him. He'd They'd served alongside each other. Paul trusted Timothy to do a good job in taking the message back to the Thessalonians and in bringing a report back to Paul so that he would know what was going on in their lives. Following up, I think we can see from this, demands communication. Look at verse 1. When we could endure it no longer. Verse 5. When I could endure it no longer. That's the demand part. Paul had this overwhelming desire to stay connected with these that he'd ministered to, and he said, it was something that I just couldn't get out of my head. I, I could endure it no longer. And so what does he do? We sent Timothy, verse 5, I sent to find out about your faith. 
And so there's this element of communication. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I feel that strongly that I need to be connected with brothers and sisters in Christ? Because I think there's a tendency in churches just to say, and I think maybe it's a problem more in larger churches than smaller ones because uh, we, we're, we're kind of a close-knit group, but it could happen even here as well. And that is to say, well, you know, so-and-so wasn't here this week. Um, it's probably just for one of these reasons, and so I'm not going to worry about it. And I'm not saying that we have to be obnoxious to one another, but at the same time, the window of opportunity to meet a need is usually pretty short. If someone's gone because they're sick, and then they're back the next week, when was our opportunity to minister to that need? It was in that week that they weren't here. And so if we say, well, you know, we're going to we're going to follow up with people three or four weeks down the road if they haven't been here for a while or that sort of thing, we're sort of missing our opportunity to minister to one another. And if someone is in the midst of a spiritual battle, when do they need that strength and encouragement? When they're facing that, that spiritual battle, whatever it might be. And so I think that we need to make sure that we are promptly connecting with people, that we are... are uh, just seeing what people's needs are, whatever they might be. And I see that as part of my job, but I think that's part of your job too. And uh, just different ministry experiences I've had. Sometimes I wouldn't find out so-and-so had been in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and maybe someone in the church knew it, but I didn't know it, so I couldn't go. And so there's opportunities for maybe you to encourage that person. There's opportunities for you to let me know so I can encourage the person and whatever might be going on. And so we need to be having communication with people to maintain a discipleship relationship. This following up that Paul did, I think, works best through face-to-face -face relationships. Look at verse 2. We sent Timothy. So he didn't just say, I'm going to write you a letter, although he clearly wrote him a letter. He sent someone to take the letter and to explain the letter and to bring a report back. And uh, obviously, I think there's an element where face-to-face -face communication is still valuable. We live in a world where it's easy to say, well, I've texted this person, or I've emailed this person, or I've called them on the phone, and none of those things are bad. They're good ways for us to stay in contact with each other. But I don't think that they're fully a substitute for seeing one another face-to-face. -face. And you know that from your own experience, you know. Maybe you're on Facebook and you make some comment and someone takes it the wrong way and gets upset. Why? Because it lacks the context for facial expressions and tone of voice and all those sorts of things. Um, phone calls are a little bit easier. You can hear someone's tone of voice, but you still can't see what they're thinking. You can't see the expressions of their face. And so sometimes to really connect with people, there has to be face-to-face -face interaction. And so something that I would hope to do uh, in the coming weeks and months is to have that interaction with all of you, whether that be having a meal together or going and doing some activity together, whatever it might be, to have that interaction with you so I can get to know you and you can get to know me and my family and, and we can connect in those ways. And uh, I, think, I think it's easier when you make those connections before there's some kind of, of problem or difficulty because there was uh, one time when I called a fellow who hadn't been at the church for a while, and I said, how's it going? And I found out later he was joking with me, but he had this real, real abrupt response, like, who are you to be calling me that I haven't been at church? 
and his wife gave him a hard time later because he said, this guy's just doing his job. Don't give him a hard time about it. But now we can joke about that and we can look back and, and, and they would say, hey, I was, just, I was gone because I was sick. I was gone because I was traveling. It's easier if the relationship comes first. But even if the relationship's not there, we have a responsibility to interact with each other, to follow up with each other. So there's many ways to communicate, but, but communicating a long distance rarely is the best way of communicating, of doing discipleship. And we see this in our own lives. If, if you have a friendship and someone moves away, the nature of the relationship changes somewhat, doesn't it? And so we have to be interacting with each other. So our follow-up needs to be communication, and it needs to ideally be face-to-face -face interaction as well. But we also need to make sure that our follow-up isn't just, okay, we've gotten together, and now we're just going to sort of talk about things that are happening in life. Make sure that your follow-up strengthens and encourages faith, because that's what Paul sent Timothy to do. Look at verse 2, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Why does faith need to be strengthened? It needs to be strengthened for the moment of difficulty. Look at verse Three, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. The Thessalonians were going through a hard time. They were facing persecution. They were facing opposition. They were facing false teachers coming in and saying, Hey, that Paul guy, I don't know, you should have listened to him. And then making up all sorts of rumors. They were attacking their faith. And faith needs to be strengthened, ideally before those attacks come. But it needs to be strengthened. Just an illustration of of how it needs to be strengthened before those attacks come. Last week I talked to you about the two coaches I had, the one that sat on the sidelines and yelled at us and the one that got in among us and ran with us. My junior year of high school, I only played for two years. My junior year of high school, I didn't play. And the reason I didn't play was this. I went on a trip to Mexico that summer, and it was hot, and it was hilly, and I didn't feel like running, so I didn't go running. And then I got back, and it's soccer tryouts, like a week or two after I get back. When it's soccer tryouts... It's too late to get in shape for soccer, right? I think the same is true of our spiritual lives. If we aren't preparing when things are going relatively smoothly, we're going to have a hard time when something comes up and, and, and it's a difficulty. And so we need faith strengthened in the midst of trials, as Timothy seems to have been doing, but even before those trials come. Faith also needs to be encouraged. And why is this? Faith needs to be encouraged because the real threat is falling away. Look at verse 5. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now Paul had said to them, trials are going to come, difficulties are going to come, so don't be surprised by this. Uh, he said that in verse 4. We told you in advance we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. But Paul doesn't seem to be primarily concerned about the fact that the trial came. What's his real concern? His real concern is the trial is going to test your faith, and it's going to show if your faith is real. So when we see a verse that says, the tempter might have tempted you, or you might fall away in faith, or any of those sorts of things, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? Does that mean that we can lose our relationship with God? I think we would have to say from a variety of passages in Scripture, John 10 and many others, where it says, we cannot lose our salvation. So then why does Paul say something like that? Why are there passages in Hebrews that seem to say there's these warnings against falling away? What's the point of that if we can't lose our salvation? And I think the reason is this. Believing, as I believe we would all say, that once you trust in Jesus, you belong to Him, and nothing can take that away from you, 
It's easy for us to come at life and say, I can't lose my salvation, and then to take a step further and say, so it doesn't matter what I do. Or as Paul would say in Romans, if we have more grace when we sin more, should we sin more so we get more grace? And he says in that passage, may it never be. God forbid that we should have that attitude. So why did God put these warning passages in there? For one, because they help us to ask ourselves the question, do I really belong to God? Because if there was no warnings, we might never think about that question, do I really belong to God? And if we really belong to God and we see that warning, here's the consequences of going away from God, what's that going to motivate us to do? I want to stick close to God. I don't want to go far away from God. And so it's, it's this, this beautiful balance of if you believe in Jesus and He gives you new spiritual life, you cannot lose that thing that He has given to you, that relationship with God. But just because you have it doesn't mean that you just sort of put it on the shelf like a ticket or like a plaque on the wall and say, I'm good, now I'm going to go do all these other things. It's a living, dynamic thing that you work at, that you continue to grow, that God wants you to be involved with because it's easy for us to maybe come to the other side and say, well, you know, I can just do whatever because I, I, I've got this certificate that says I'm good. We can never have that attitude. So Paul's concern was one of these two things. That some of the ones who said they followed God hadn't really and when the trial came, it was going to show that they didn't really follow God. And Paul was going to have the sense that his work among them was in vain, that it was a waste. Because these people said they followed God, and then the trial showed they really don't. Or that people were going to be deceived or pulled away from a sense of following God and be like maybe like Peter. What did Peter do? Peter denied Christ for a time. And God had to bring him to repentance and bring him back to following him. And so Paul's concerned that some of the Thessalonians were either going to be shown to not be true believers or were going to fall into sin and have to be brought back to repentance. And, and if everyone was in that state, Paul would potentially feel that his labor had been in vain. And so what did he say? He said, instead of waiting to see what's happening, I'm going to send Timothy. I want to find out what's happening because I want to make sure that your faith is strengthened, that your faith is encouraged. So future joy is the motivation that drives our desire to see discipleship, to see these relationships happen. But there also has to be a commitment to follow up by the pastor, by the church members, by all of us together, because if we're not committed to it, it's not going to happen, right? It's great to say, well, we, we ought to do this, but then if we don't do it, then we show that we're not really committed to it happening. And that's one of those things where we know the right thing to do many times, and oftentimes it's not, do I know what I ought to do? It's am I, you know, I know I got to get up at 6.30 this morning so I can be at this place at this time. Am I going to do it, or am I going to sleep in? Am I going to cut the lawn because it needs cut? I'm going to say, I can wait a couple more days. And you can get by with that with the lawn until the city comes and gives you a citation, you pay a little money, and then you cut it. But in our spiritual lives, if we have that attitude... Sometimes real problems crop up before we've dealt with them. So there's a motivation, there's a process, but then there's also a benefit, a result. What happens when we do this thing? 
I put it this way, renewing discipleship results in present joy. So the motivation is future joy. But when we have the opportunity to renew that discipleship relationship, we have present joy. We see this in verses 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. In this way, I think Paul is sort of bookending what he's saying with joy. There's future joy that motivates him. There's present joy that often comes as the reward of doing this kind of work. Why does this joy happen? It happens because discipleship is a two-way street. If we think about it in terms of going to school in a classroom kind of setting, you have the teacher and you have the students. And a lot of times we just sort of think, well, the teacher has to do their job, and the students either get it or they don't get it, and that's kind of all there is to it. But in discipleship, it's not just a one-way thing. Why do I say that? Look at verse 6, particularly the second half of verse 6. He says, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. I'd put it this way. When those you love love you back, it warms your heart. And Paul had this sense, I've poured my life into these Thessalonian believers. And then he gets this message back, they want to see me as much as I want to see them. That was exciting to Paul. That was something that encouraged Paul. Furthermore, when others grow in faith, it grows your faith even in your own trials. Look at verse 7. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. And so Paul's looking at this and he's saying, I'm going through my own trials, but I see that your faith is staying strong in your trials, and that strengthens my own faith. We don't all go through all the trials, at the same trials at the same time. But when we see other Christians going through something and they respond properly and they show faith and they have a relationship with God, that encourages us that we ought to do the same thing, right? Verse 8, when they stick with the faith, you remember it's all worth doing. Verse 8, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Paul's not talking about physical life, but I think he's saying... What I just said, this was worth it because what was his concern in verse 5? Our labor would be in vain. Verse 8, now we really live. Why? Then we weren't sure where you stood. Now we see where you stand and we have confidence that God is working in you and it was worth it. Joy also happens when discipleship draws us back to God. So it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, it's just things that we have to do. And if we check off the right boxes, if we do all the right processes, it just sort of happens. This is something that's connected to God. God's the one that's accomplishing us in us. We do the work, but God's the one who's ultimately at work in us. God is doing the work, so we thank Him. Look at verse 9. What thanks can we render to God for you? 
Well, why would they thank God? Because Paul recognized, it's not me ultimately that did it. I was the messenger. I was the servant. God's the one that did the work. So we're going to thank God for the work that he was doing. We can't thank God enough for what? For the joy that discipling others brings. Look at verse 9. What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? And so you look at that phrase and you say, Paul's saying, I thank God for the joy that I got because God is working in you and it causes me to rejoice and then that goes back to God. And it's just this interesting dynamic of how all these things fit together. What thanks can we render to God for all the joy that we rejoice before God on your account? I think we also see that we cry out in prayer. Why? Verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. We cry out in prayer because we know we haven't done enough and we want to do more. And if God gives us the opportunity, we'll be glad to do it. And if he doesn't, we'll pray that God will give the opportunity to somebody else. But sometimes we look at Paul and we're like, Paul was this great guy and he was way up here. Paul, I think, had a very real sense that as much as God gifted him and in all the opportunities that God gave him, he had a sense, my work is not done until I draw my last breath. And if these people still have room to grow, I still have opportunity to minister to them. And if I don't have opportunity to minister to them, I want to make sure that somebody else is there doing it if I can't be there. Do we have that kind of burden for each other? When it says complete what is lacking in your faith, he's not saying they don't believe in God. He's saying complete what is lacking in your faith in the sense of they may not be spiritually mature. Peter talks a lot about that in his epistles, and I think Paul's using similar language here. And so, Lord willing, we will look at verses 11 to 13 on Wednesday night. Uh, But let's think back over at what we've looked at this morning from these verses. So here's my first question. Do you desire to have a relationship with fellow Christians? There's a sense in which you do automatically because we're in the church and the Holy Spirit has placed us together in the body of Christ. But do you desire that? Do you want to see that grow? Then do you do the work to follow up to keep those relationships moving forward? And then do you rejoice as you renew those relationships throughout the week, throughout the month, whenever those points of interaction happen, does that cause your heart to rejoice? If you answer yes, I'd say praise God, keep up the work. As it says in another place, you're already doing this, abound still more. But if you say no to at least one of those questions, I want to think for just a minute about why we might answer no. And I'll admit, if, you're, if we would have to answer no to one of those questions, particularly as time goes on, it might be because I'm not doing my job well at setting an example of what that looks like. So I'll, I'll freely admit that sometimes it can be because the pastor needs to model what it's supposed to look like. But you personally, if you don't want to have a relationship with other Christians, obviously the first possibility we have to ask ourselves is, am I really a Christian? Because if I don't belong to Jesus, if I've never turned away from my sins and turned to Jesus for my hope of heaven and my purpose in life and and for the salvation that I need because sin brings a penalty before God, if I've never done that, if that's never happened in my life, I don't have that connection at all with other Christians, and so why would I want to get to know them or be a part of things among them? 
And so that's a possibility. And so the first place, the place where all of this starts with discipleship is what, uh, when Jesus said, go and make disciples, you can't be a disciple until you turn from your sin, you turn to Christ, and you say, I'm actually going to follow him. Because you're not a disciple if you don't follow, right? A second possibility, if you have started following Jesus, is perhaps this. Maybe you think connections in the church are exactly like friendships that we experience in our day-to-day lives. Let me explain that for a minute. Why do we have friendships in the world? We have friendships in the world because we have common interests, we have shared jobs, we have similar experiences or backgrounds. But in the church, we are a family. Do you pick your family? Not your physical family, generally, no. Do you always like your family? Sometimes no. Sometimes we don't get along. But except for the most broken and difficult situations, there's still that bond, that connection with people in your family. And that's true in the church too. We're connected, and this bond is not all those other things. It's Jesus. So ask yourself this. Do I, am I hesitant to, to connect with other church members because they're different from me? Paul says in another place, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Those differences are everything outside the church and they are nothing inside the church. I'm not saying they have no significance. I'm saying in terms of our standing before God, I don't get more points because I'm a guy or a girl, because of my economic status, because of my ethnicity, those things do not determine my standing before God. And yet, because those are the grids that we tend to look at people out in daily life, we bring that into the church and we say, I will only connect with people that fit in the box of like me. So don't look at fellow church members through that worldly sort of perspective. Because... What connects us again is Jesus, not those other things. Going to the question of following up. If we don't follow up with other Christians to see how they're doing, particularly members in this church, why not? One possibility is that we're being lazy. And I'm sure at some point we all struggle with that in various areas of life. Sometimes we don't do it because we're afraid how someone's going to react. I don't know what I should say. I'm not sure what the response is going to be, so... It's easier if I just sort of avoid it. Sometimes it's because we're not convinced it's really worth doing. But laziness is never a good reason to avoid something. Because you're going to have to do it eventually, right? And oftentimes, the thing that we fear that people are going to react in a certain way when we have these sorts of conversations, sometimes they go a lot better than we expect. And in terms of we're not doing it because we're not convinced of the importance of it, This goes all throughout Scripture, that this is something that we ought to be doing. And so if God was concerned to put it in His Word and say, do this, then at the end of the day, all those other reasons don't matter. We have to say, God has called us to do this. And going to that last question of, do we rejoice when we see other Christians growing? If we don't, why not? It could be because you say, I'm not growing the same way that they're growing, and so maybe you feel guilty in some way. Maybe it's because your Christian life has sort of become a routine and and you're sort of checking off the boxes of, I I think about God's Word, I, I pray to God, I come to church. 
but I, my heart's not really in it. And that would be something that we would need to deal with, but whatever those obstacles, those reasons for not rejoicing, that should be a red flag to us that we say, I need to rejoice with those who rejoice. I should be excited about what God's doing in the lives of those around me and in my life. And if it's not happening in my life the way it should, I need to figure out what the problem is there and deal with it. We ought to want each other to grow more. We ought to work hard to stay close to each other as we grow closer to God. And we ought to rejoice as God works in us and in other people. And so do you have this kind of relationship with fellow church members? We pray that God help us to have the right motive, the right method, and the right result as we practice discipleship, even as Paul did in the Thessalonian church. Let's pray. Lord, we looked at these truths together this morning. We know that we can't accomplish these things apart from your work in our hearts and lives. Lord, we know that we need your strength to do these things. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the right motive, that we'd buckle down and do the hard work of working these things out in day-to-day life. And we pray that we might see the blessing and the benefit of doing it even now. But if not, that we would look forward to that future joy of when we will be in your presence and we will see those that we've had opportunity to minister to and rejoice that they are there and we are there and you are honored and glorified in these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.